Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the limited series Moon Knight on Disney+. Plus. Uh, also, the novel Hilled, some light spoilers, uh, by Nicola Griffith, and a number of other fantasy novels. <laughs> so beware. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, and previously on lots of comic book news, uh, lead casting announcement in the upcoming Percy Jackson series on Disney+, Plus. Uh, plus the MCU's Ironheart series has named its directors, and we will do our recap of episode three of Moon Knight uh, in the airlock. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, fantasy and sci-fi authors, especially by queer and marginalized authors. And then for The Hive Mind, we're going to be talking to award-winning author of, of many stories, including Ammonite, including So Lucky, uh, and one of Rosie and, and my favorites, Hild, Nicola Griffith. And in our Nerd Out, uh, a listener will uh, pitch us on the Illuminatus trilogy. Joining me today to talk about all of that and more is the great, the powerful, the Godzilla comic book <laughs> creating, various theory pieces writing, the great content creating, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? It's me. I'm okay. I've escaped <laughs> the content <laughs> minds. I've escaped the content creating minds one day to be here. <laughs> the minds the minds are endless and they never stop and you have to just keep mining the same stuff. Yeah, it's uh, like being in Stardews. Just there's too many levels. Just keep going down. Always something else to mine. <laughs> okay, let's get into the news. Marvel Comics announced recently at the Fan Expo in Philadelphia a new title, All Out Avengers. This seems like it's going to be kind of in the vein of nonstop Spider-Man uh, created by the creative team uh, All Out Avengers is of uh, Greg Land, who uh, the artist Greg Land, who if you've listened to us and if you know of <laughs> Greg Land, uh, can be divisive. And uh, the novelist uh, Derek Landy, uh, this apparently is going to be a – uh, kind of like it seems, just reading, parsing the uh, the press release tea leaves, going to be something of a ultimate kind of take on the Avengers, more action-packed, certainly. Uh, I, you know, the press release basically says they're going to just drop you media res into the middle of yeah. some pitch battle, and it's going to be like that. Just like fight, 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 action, 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 action. Uh, your thoughts. Yeah, your thoughts on Greg Land. <laughs> Well, I've had a lot of photos about Greg Land. Photo tracing. No, but yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah. Let's, I, I, he's one of those artists where every so often I'll see a piece of art and I'm like, oh my fucking God, that's Greg Land. That is so fucking good. And I really hope he's bringing that angle to this. He can be good. He, he, there's, yeah. he can be good. Like, And you know what? The thing that I really like about this is it's doing the thing that Marvel does best, which is where Marvel looks to what indie comics are doing, looks to what weird other licenses are doing and it's like oh we should be doing that and there's been this incredible spate you know we've talked about that james stokoe godzilla stuff like there mm -hmm. is you know these unbelievable artists michael fife like there's all these different people who are making these comics where when you pick them up you feel like you're just in an action movie you feel even that you know i i have a lot of moral quandaries with it but the keanu reeves uh comic that he that he wrote with matt kent um mm -hmm. berserker you know 
that those comics you there's just this unbelievable tone just boom 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 action explosions it's not necessarily about like a, a deeper narrative or selling an ip for a movie it's about the kinetic force of of what comic yeah. book art can do like young avengers you know we talk about that a lot that era of marvel they were doing stuff where you just go oh my god how how did this happen how did you put this on the page and i love that the description is there just like Action, explosions, yeah. no questions. Yeah. No, So I want to see what that looks like. And I'm hoping it's going to be weird and and explosive and kind of really exciting because that's not something I feel like we're getting as much in Big Two Comics. So I, 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 I will be open-minded to it and I will definitely put the first issue on my pull list. Next, we get a new... Big news. This is kind of big news. Secretly big news. Secretly Ooh, huge retcon. This is definitely big news. Uh, yes. A new origin for Thor. Uh, Marvel has announced that a new Avengers uh, 1 million BC will release this July and will delve into the uh, newly revealed origin of Thor, our favorite god of thunder. Um, the uh, image that this uh, announcement was teased with uh, showed the uh, the phoenix force symbol uh no further details were uh, were available but of course uh, we learned uh, back in 2021 that uh lady phoenix who is the original host of the phoenix well original the one host of, of the, the uh, one, that we know the, right right the host of the phoenix force in a million bc uh is actually thor's real mom so dun, dun, there was dun. Dun, 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 there was that reveal so uh, this is uh, going to be very interesting. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I'm like mix up this weird stuff. I the Phoenix Force. It it's truly immortal in the world of Marvel comics. Like it will always be there. It's Echo how holds the Phoenix Force. Every different character, you know. I love the Phoenix Force. I'm an '80s X Men baby, so I'm here to see it. I love Thor. I love weird cosmic stuff, so I'm open to it. As always, as we always say on the show yes. to the people who listen. Anything like this is always interesting to keep an eye on if you love the MCU because when they set up something like this, yes, it could this is big. end yeah. up in a different way. I'm not saying that in Thor Love and Thunder, Thor's going to suddenly hold the Phoenix Force or, or connect with it. But the idea of changing Thor's origin, of introducing something that's not fully Asgardian, that seems like they could yes. be seeding something. Also, um, that issue, Avengers 43, that's got letters by like one of my favorite letters Corey Petit so shout out to Corey <laughs> anytime and, I see his name I'm and, like yeah those yeah, letters and, are good and to your point we are entering a a, a period of the MCU where uh, we can reasonably expect to see uh, the X-Men mm-hmm. Jean Grey potentially the Phoenix Force arrive on screens you know yep. in the in the near term so you never know uh, exciting. Uh, next up, Axe. How would we pronounce this? Axe Judgment Day. A X E Judgment Day. What do you? I think how do you think this is free pronounced? for all. I think it's because it's got the periods. I think it's A X E. But obviously, the the acronym is Axe, so that sounds cool as hell. And they probably also want you to say Axe. <laughs> From a really a uh, uh, wow blockbuster creative team of Kieran Gillen, one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. Period uh, and Valerio Shitty, the uh, wonderful artist, mm-hmm. uh, comes 
AXE Judgment Day. And this, uh, so the press release says, quote, kicking off after the Eternals boldly attack mutant kind's new home in Krakoa. Why would you do that, Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Don't do that. This complex saga will pay off various plot threads that have defined these franchises in recent years, including mutant kind's newfound immortality. The Eternals' discovery of long-hidden truths about their species and the Avengers' intense dealings with the Celestials. So a pretty big crossover event uh, with – and this one, I think, for sure will have some reverberations Absolutely. in the MCU going forward. We, we've we long said – and this is not just us two. This is we as the general fan. This is right. you who's listening. This is people at home. This is people who have only really read a couple of trades – it has seemed like for a long time a really smart way for them to bring the X-Men into the MCU would be some kind of Avengers versus X-Men. That's a badass team-up explosion. It's the kind of thing everyone wants to see. And now that the Eternals exist in the MCU, it seems like it's probably not a coincidence to reimagine that battle, including the Eternals, who have often been on the outside of things. I'm sure there's a different universe a different timeline that we would be living in where this would be Avengers, X-Men, and the Inhumans. But that's not the world we're living in. We're living in the world of the Eternals, you know? And so I think it's very telling. I think this is really exciting because I read Immortal X-Men number one, which was Kieran Gillen jumping back on the X-Men after a while. And it was so good and so funny and so exciting. It launches the new age of... The, the second age of Krakoa, which they're calling the Age of Destiny because the lesbian yeah. icon Destiny is back. I love her. And she's back saying she's crazy back, stuff. Baby, saying some crazy stuff. Saying she's, some crazy she's, stuff. Their and... will never win. Everyone knows that's the rule. Like, you can't do anything about it. So <laughs> Every time she's got something to say, I'm like, uh-oh, yeah. here we go. That's it's... why Moira Taggart, you know, Moira yeah. Taggart, she didn't want her back. She said, no precogs. It's a bad yeah. idea. Yeah. And uh, so I think this is going to be a massive event. I think the creative team is badass. It is, if you have recently set up a poll list and have X-Men books on it, you may experience for the first time the the epic highs and devastating lows of an event book (laughs) where suddenly there's 25 books in your your thing. But it seems like this will be relatively small. I think it's going to be like Immortal X-Men, X-Men Red. So it's going to be X title heavy. But this is one I think to keep an eye on because, like we said, blockbuster creative team, unreal art, but also could potentially seed some things that we may be seeing in the future of the MCU. I agree. So it's interesting to think about, like, really how close, I mean, two of the three teams already exist, right? We've got the Avengers names here. Eternals are here, X-Men to come. But I keep thinking, so, uh, you know, in the comics, the, the Avengers eventually move into the like the the body of a celestial uh, <laughs> to use as their new HQ. And of course, at the end of Eternals, right, mm-hmm. we've got this celestial that is sticking out of the ocean. Looking and I, very cool. I, looking an very, HQ. very cool. And I have to assume that at some point an Avengers team is going to move in there. Do you have any thoughts about who would be a member of that yes. team when they move in? <laughs> sure. Surprisingly, hear. I do. Yeah, yeah. So I think that we're about to enter the era that we have so uh, smartly helmed the Jacket Avengers. Yeah. I, they they wore bomber jackets. They included, you know, Cersei, who we saw. They included yeah. Dane Whitman as Black yeah. Knight. They included, uh, you know, Wonder Man, somebody who we know is deeply connected to Wonder and Vision, you know. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of potential. Hercules, someone that we've been expecting to see in this Avengers for a long time. I think that we could see 
I think that we're on the right track imagining that we're going to see multiple different versions of the Avengers. But yeah. I think that if we're going to get like a, a primary just Avengers team, I think we're looking more at that kind of like jacket Avengers kind of wild era. That also is an era that could cross over with like a Monica Rambeau yeah. Avengers, you know, which I think is very likely. So could we see a sword kind of created Avengers? I want to see them living in that celestial. I, that was like I, so cool. I think it's going to be uh, Monica Rambeau, mm -hmm. Jane Foster Thor, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Doctor Strange. Oh, you know what? Falcon Captain America. That would Falcon fit. Falcon Captain with... America. Yep. Uh, Blade. Oh, yeah. And then whatever they're going to, like, uh, whoever the new Black Panther is. Yes. Which we will see when Wakanda Forever comes out. Uh, so very exciting. Uh, uh, yeah, can't wait to pick this one up. Uh, next up, we go to DC. DC's death of Justice League and Dark Crisis. DC is promoting the Justice League's demise in the death of Justice League, the final issue of the series. And that's it. They're not going to do Justice League anymore. <laughs> Ever after this. again. Ever this again. Never it's happened before. over. It's done. That's it. <laughs> Fans were told Justice League, Justice League would face a dark army of villains. But now we get our first look at who makes up this villainous group and preview art for Justice League number 75, which is out, uh, will be out next week. Yeah. Um, this comes from this, the creative team of Josh Williamson and artist Rafa Sandoval. Um, your thoughts on, on the death of Justice League and Dark Crisis. I'm such a fan of Joshua Williamson and everything that yeah. he's done on this. I really discovered him during his time on Flash, and I just think he's doing a lot of really exciting stuff. I I deeply respect and appreciate the editorial idea of basically eliminating the Justice League just before this kind of huge trial of the Amazons and introducing yeah. this new age of Themyscira. I think it's really smart. I love creepy... I, dark dark crisis i like the um you know i like the the metal stuff that they were doing with dc it was really over the top and kind of 90s extreme Rafa is a great artist so i think this is really interesting I, it it feels almost a bit like to me like people aren't talking about it and i feel like mm. when it happens people are going to start talking about it you know like this is even though we know as comic book fans the justice league is not going to go away forever Spoiler alert, right? right? Spoiler alert, they'll be back. It's still a big deal. Like, remember when deal. they killed Superman, Death of Superman? That's that why we still talk deal. about that event. Like, this is a thing that is occurring. And I mean, it's a Avengers, big deal. I cried at Avengers Disassembled. And this was, like, the second time in five years that the team had broken up. Yeah, also, there's, like, yeah. really cool artists. Like, I, I really yeah. like Stephanie Phillips. She's done a brilliant job writing, like, Harlequin, a bunch of cool yeah. stuff. Leila Del Luca's an amazing artist. Emanuela Lupacino. Like, they're going to have... They're going to... They're bringing in, like, an A-team. And I want to see what the ramifications are. Because there's yeah, a lot same. of books people really love at the moment. You know, uh, the Nightwing stuff is, like, so spectacular. Like, I want to know how this affects it. What does it mean for Trial of the Amazons? You know, is it going to be, is that going to leave a, a power vacuum that's going to impact that? Or is this more of a kind of, will there be a twist that means this doesn't really affect it? I, I like to see how these things tie in. So I think it's really cool. Uh, 
Next up, Percy Jackson on Disney Plus casts uh, its title role, casts its Percy. The Percy Jackson and the, Olympi- and the Olympian series at Disney Plus has cast Walker Scobell from uh, – you might know him from the Netflix film The Atom Project in title role. The series, of course, is an adaptation of the Rick Reardon book series and uh, was ordered by the streamer back in uh, back in January. Uh, this is relevant because – and particularly for today's episode where we're, we're – we're trying to focus on uh, creators who are elevating voices and working from a personal experience that is out of uh, perhaps what people are consider the mainstream. We're talking mm-hmm. about um, disability literature, uh, queer creators, queer characters, et cetera. And Percy Jackson has both ADHD and dyslexia um, and and it triumphs and uh, takes part in a bunch of rip-roaring adventures yeah. despite these uh, his disabilities. Um, and, Reardon has long been an advocate mm-hmm. for marginalized and underrepresented uh, voices in YA, YA fiction. Uh, and I know that this is something, as our producer Saul was uh, telling us in the, in the pre-pro meeting, this is something that a lot of fans of the series have really been waiting for. Yeah, like the movies didn't necessarily deliver for everyone on kind of the scope of what these can be. So I think a series gives a long, fo- a long kind of format storytelling is like a better space for telling these kind of epic stories of a kid who's like half god half human you know and yeah and he he definitely the adhd and dyslexia thing is way ahead of its time and and the way that rick writes it is it is a it's 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 helpful it's it's what makes him him you know it's very much in the mindset of how people think about disability now which is it's a part of you and it's a good part of you it's just society that doesn't see it and uh, I'm a big fan of Rick, not just because of these books, which obviously, like, we read, they were one of those primary sci- sci-fi fantasy kind of books when you were a kid. But he has a, he actually has an imprint called Rick Rodan Presents, which is, like, specifically focused on publishing brilliant middle grade and kind of sci-fi fantasy magical books, but, like, from underrepresented authors. And I've seen so many incredible books come out of that imprint. And I just think... He's kind of doing that thing that you always hope when somebody writes something that's really special to you, which is the bigger his platform grows, the more good he does with it. And I think something mm-hmm. that's really exciting about a Percy Jackson show on Disney Plus is I think that that mentality is going to come through into the show. And I'm really excited to see how it translates to the on-screen representation as well. And I like that they cast the actual kid. This kid is yeah. 12. He's a baby. Like, that's what I want to see. Up next, Ironheart gets its directors. Uh, Ryan Coogler is joining as a producer this per deadline. Marvel's Ironheart series on Disney Plus uh, is moving into the different stages of production. Now, of course, Ironheart is the story of Riri Williams, who is, as of now, canonically the smartest character in the Marvel Universe, a genius inventor, um, kind of like the heir to uh, a lot of the things that Tony Stark has done. Uh, she will get her own advanced uh, suit of armor, uh, and of course, we're down. We're down in Iron Man right now. We mm-hmm. need we need so, we need someone in the armor right now, and it very much could be uh, Riri Williams at some point in time. Your thoughts? I'm, this is really exciting. Yeah, it's I really love, exciting. I love Riri Williams. It it connects to one of the things that we love the most, which is like the reality that Riri is going to be a big part of the Black Panther world. It's yes. With Ryan being there, it seems like that is the case. We were talking about this in a pre-pro, and you had, I don't know if this is your theory, but it was the first I heard of it, 
you had a good theory about how they may approach Black Panther going forward. Uh, yeah, this is this is my current theory. I think that Marvel really sees the impact that Black Panther had and the what it meant to people around the world, what it meant to Black people, what it meant to African-American people in America. And I think that they're going to use it as a tentpole space for Black heroes. And I think that is going to be their hub. I think that Riri Williams, who who went to MIT and it is like this unbelievably smart student, I don't think it's a coincidence that right. Ryan Coogler is producing that show and that Black Panther is one of the few movies uh, Wakanda Forever that has ever been allowed to film actually on the MIT campus because they said it would elevate the school and, and promote the the meanings. I don't think that you're going to go to MIT and not see Riri, you know? And we should say, you know, Riri Williams, created by uh, Eve Ewing, who's just so brilliant, Mike Diodato, love, Brian love, Michael Bendis, Kevin you. Lebranda, yeah. like this is a crew, but Eve was such a huge part of bringing Riri to life and making this character that we just all love so much who immediately became a fan fave. And also, if you think about Riri, the thing I think is really exciting about this is this is not just about new black characters. We're about to go into Armor Wars. So we're going to yeah. have this story where Rhodey is going to be at the center of Armor Great Wars. Point. It's going to be a story about somebody misusing Stark tech and Rhodey is going to need as many people as possible on his side right. who understand Stark tech, who understand technology. Tony is no longer there. I would love to see Riri brought in that's a, a great major point. part of that storyline. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a mistake either that uh MJ played by the wonderful mm-hmm. Zendaya in uh in Spider-Man No Way Home uh where's she going to college? She's going to MIT. That I think can't that be a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence. Uh we're look I I would imagine that they will meet and uh, to your point maybe this is the the we're kind of uh, witnessing the early formations of what will be a hub for the uh, uh, brown superheroes in the MCU. Um, let's go to our recap of Moon Knight Episode 3. The Friendly Type, written by Bo DeMeo and Peter Cameron and Sabir Prasada and directed by Mohamed Diab. Um, this was... Uh, I was not expecting this episode to delve into... Uh, Steven slash Mark's experiences mm-hmm. uh, with this kind of like consciousness dislocation, uh, essentially mental illness in, in the way that it presents. Um, and this did it in a really evocative and interesting way. Let's get into the recap. Okay. Uh, Layla, we ha- we open with what we can only expect to be some kind of uh, uh, cold open of which we will learn more, Layla is having her passport forged mm-hmm. uh, and she is griping about Mark and what just went down with the scarab and how now she has to go back to home to Egypt and she's not really too enthused about going back to Egypt. She's been gone 10 years, doing, during which time she has been busy repatriating ancient relics, <laughs> um, uh, which is a highly moral, of course, activity, also a very illegal activity, and also one which she's not exactly doing out of the goodness of her heart. She is, she admits, like, yeah, I'm making money from some of it. Like, I return most of them, and then some of them I do sell uh, for a profit. Layla's father, we learn, uh, was an archaeologist, which is uh, very much in keeping with the, the original Moon Knight. Um, yeah, it's it, the it, original Moon Knight comic. If 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 Layla is our Marlene, who is right, uh, Moon Knight's often lover and partner, her father, 
uh, was an archaeologist. Her father was innate to the origins of Moon Knight, which we also get into this episode. So definitely taking from those comics. And apparently her dad taught her the importance of the forged documents mm-hmm. uh, when smuggling uh, illicit artifacts across borders. Uh, and and we're left to wonder what uh, possibly her dad would think of her now. And then we flash to the desert. Somewhere in the desert, Arthur Harrow, guided by the scarab, arrives at a mountain. Uh, and we understand that this must be the tomb of Amit. Elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, we meet Mark media res like he is running into three tough guys uh, three local guys who have just killed some person that has information that mark needs uh and they are apparently in some way either working for or affiliated with arthur harrow and they have knives and they uh, twirl them flashily and then uh mark fights them and Mm -hmm. he seems to have things pretty much in hand but then he sees his reflection in the knife blade, and all of a sudden he's hurtling through time, and we understand that he's lost time. Now, this is very interesting because you'd think, and we have been primed to expect, that when something like this happens, the Stephen or whoever the other person is that is you know waiting on the bench will then seize the body. But instead, Mark has just lost an unknown amount of time, and he finds himself in the back of a taxi on the way to the airport, and he, as he's driving by, he sees two of the tough guys mm-hmm. that he was just fighting on the street, and he goes out and uh, and he goes to fight them again. But then another glance at his reflection, and the cycle repeats. And now Mark is somewhere else in the city, having just murdered one of the guys. What do you think is going well, on here? This is because really, this is interesting. So this, this is, is the interesting. So this is the interesting moment. So uh, when it first happens, I think we see Stephen say, "Mark, stop doing that," or something, and you think, yeah, yeah. "Oh well, Stephen's taking the body," but. As Mark wakes up and he's stabbed this guy, killing him, you know, the body count here is very high. Mark's like, Stephen, what did you do? Stephen's like, right. I didn't do that. So the, I think the implication is here. Jake Lockley waiting it could in the, be Jake wait Lockley, in the wings. Because they are reimagining these characters in ways that we haven't seen before. So it could be Jake Lockley. It could be, uh, for all we know, Konshu, like a more, right. v- he's violently, it could be a character we haven't met yet. It could be a reimagining of uh, Mr. Knight. But obviously, I think the the immediate answer would be Jake Lockley. And if I was Easter egg hunting, which I always am, I would say Mark waking up in the back of a taxi, Jake Lockley is a taxi right, driver. Yep. I feel yep. like they want us to think of that. Also, a fun Easter egg from the opening forger section, it, which is only for people with hard of hearing uh, or who have captions on, the forger who is credited as the forger, they name her Legaro, which is this really funny, like, 1940s Marvel Egyptian hero who is also called Dynaman. So, no, it's not the character, but that was a fun Easter egg. But, yeah, I think we're venturing into more uh, alters or personalities or whichever version yes. they decide to do. And I think, that though it doesn't really get explored much further here, I think a lot of people who are watching the show are wondering when we're going to see that because it's such a key part of his personality. And this definitely hints that we're on the way there. And also that both Mark and Stephen are less comfortable with violence than we first thought. And then there's a burgeoning alliance kind of a relationship, at Mm -hmm. least between the two. If, if, if a rocky one, it will be interesting to see how they both react to 
the understanding that there are more than them coming exactly. through. They, because I don't I don't think they've grasped that quite yet, although we are left with the with the absolutely uh, quite clear fact that there's someone not Stephen, not Mark, who is coming through. I think you actually touched on something there that's that I hadn't necessarily given the show credit for. The the two the two of them being the primary personalities at this point as we know it seemed like a strange choice to me but now that you mentioned that i guess it's given them time to kind of get to know each other build a rapport yeah. before potentially there is more conflict so yeah it becomes a situation where it's the two of them together understanding whatever is about to happen next in this episode and, and the following three so uh mark has just killed one of the tough guys that leaves him uh, with one more Kanshu comes through as a voice and is like Torture this guy, you know, throw him <laughs> off the roof, do something. Yeah, kill him, no one uh, But this one is really like a kid, like a young kid. Um, and uh, a bunch of things happen. And uh, basically the kid, uh, you know, is being held up by like his tie and he cuts the tie and he falls um, to his death. Uh, Mark argues then with Stephen. He warns Stephen, listen, you got to stay out of my way. Mark wants to ask the other gods for help. Why don't we ask the other gods for help? Well, you know, why don't we why don't mm-hmm. we tell them what Harrow is planning? And Kanshu was like, no, they would they wouldn't they would just get annoyed. They're tired of me. They don't want to listen to me. They if if I'm involved, they will just ignore it. But I but actually I think I do know a way how we could get their attention without you having to go with them. Uh and it's a bad plan, but just let me go through <laughs> with it. So basically Kanshu causes an eclipse. So uh immediately the gods open a portal and are like, uh, Mark, come here, you need to talk to us because this is a no no, just kind of uh-huh. like displaying to the to humanity that we exist. Mark goes through the portal, he finds himself inside the Great Pyramid at Giza. Uh Mark meets the avatars of the gods. Basically, they're human representatives on Earth who the gods will speak through on occasion. One of them is Yatzil, who is the representative of Hathor, goddess of music and love. And apparently, we are left to to surmise an old flame of Khonshu. Mm -hmm. Khonshu just like left on Reed after a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Khonshu, she's like, there was a time when Khonshu used to like my uh, rhythms, you know? It's like, oh, Stephen's too messed up. He's too upset (laughs) to like notice. He's like, sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other gods uh, and their representatives uh, include Horus, Isis, Tefnut, Osiris, and Hathor, of course, and they take control of their avatars' bodies, and they invite Khonshu to take control of Stephen slash Mark and to make his case about uh, uh, what's going on and what they should do about Amit and Arthur Harrow. The gods have long uh, hewed to a philosophy of non-intervention in human affairs because, uh, as they say, the humans have just moved past them. They don't really care about us anymore. So we've kind of been, uh, you know, doing things in the background. Kanshu finds this to be weak, a weak course of action is like basically cowardly. And he charges Arthur Harrow, his former avatar, with attempting to release Amit. Harrow arrives uh, through a portal to defend himself. He denies that this is what he's doing. Kanchu uh, then using the uh, Mark Spector, Stephen Grant body takes a swing at Arthur Harrow. He's stopped by one of the gods who's like, listen, can't do that here. There's no violence here. What are you doing? Harrow then accuses Kanchu of essentially exploiting uh, a mentally ill man, Stephen Grant slash Mark Spector, a person who is, uh, you know, a, a quite willing a servant and avatar of Kanshu, but also one who is He's not struggling. in a place is not in a place to really give their consent to be the avatar of Kanshu. And I think 
Harrow, from what we've seen, I think Arthur Harrow has something of a point. But of course, we don't know the whole story yet. But I would say that it, certainly it looks bad for Khonshu, Arthur, who is not the most trustworthy of gods look, from what we've seen. Does Arthur want to like be killing people, minority report style, yes. before they can make a yes. 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 In this moment, in this pyramid, in is this he episode, right? Right, yeah. does he seem like he's making lots of good points and legitimately cares Absolutely about Stephen Amok? Absolutely. That's 100%. why I came away from this episode. I was like, one... Stephen Mark, not very good at like, this would have been so easy to just cover up and be like, I'm doing fine. This guy's trying to release Amit. He has a compass. They were struggling. They were going through it. And Harrow came off looking good. So no surprises that the gods were like. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Mark then admits that to to the room, to the avatars of the gods, to Khonshu and to, and to Arthur Harrow's like, listen, uh, uh, I'm going through it a little bit um, and I need help. <laughs> Uh, for sure, I, I would like some help. Um, and that was, I felt that. That was a big th- step for Mark to take. But he also says, listen, that doesn't change the fact that Arthur Harrow wants to go on a killing spree. He wants to kill a lot of people and he wants to release Amit to do that. He wants to just commit genocide on a global scale. Uh, and then the gods are like, nah, we go with Harrow. And the matter's closed. That's it. Uh, we're shutting it down. They leave. But then Yatsil hangs around, uh, clearly has some sort of warm feeling for Mark, and she points Mark to a clue by which he might find Amit's tomb without the uh, the scarab, the sarcophagus of Senfu, which apparently has recently hit the black market. Layla and Mark reunite. You get a feeling from these scenes that clearly they were actually in love at one point, and Mark tells her that he's, listen, I'm sorry for hiding how much I was struggling from you. And they come to an uneasy piece. Um, they then arrive at the home of Mogart, the antiquities dealer on the banks of the Nile, where uh, they are going to find Senfu's sarcophagus. Layla and Mark are posing as this kind of like married couple who just want to study this sarcophagus for a second. Mogart is like, why are you so interested in Senfu's mm-hmm. sarcophagus? And Mark's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Mark does another bad job at covering up. He's like very, very, very bad, bad at just blagging. <laughs> Very, very bad. Mark then, uh, of course, of course, Mark doesn't know anything about Egyptology, right? And Layla knows some stuff, but not as much as uh, this third person who is waiting in the wings, Stephen Grant. And uh, Mark is like, I know that I need to let Stephen out so he can read this hieroglyphs so we can understand how to find Ahmed's tomb, but I really don't want to do it. Uh, but fuck, okay, I'll do it. Um, Stephen then talks Mark through the puzzle and the sarcophagus. Before they can learn anything, Mogart interrupts and takes Mark prisoner. Then Harrow interrupts, offering Mogart the scarab in exchange for Layla and Mark, who's surely like he's going to kill soon after. Harrow then vows, wows Mogart with a small display of Amit's power. Uh, Mark dons the suit. And then we get the big fight, and it is an action-packed episode. Moon Knight and Layla versus Harrow's people and and Mogart's people. Layla, we we see, can really handle herself. And they are uh, killing people. Her and, they her are and Mark are just out, killing people. They're flat-out dropping people to the ground. <laughs> um, and we also get a great... Uh, we get a great front row view seat of how powerful the the Moon Knight suit is mm-hmm. and Khonshu's blessing is because he is stopping bullets with his cape. He is taking damage that is not killing him, yeah, we have yada, the, yada, the yada. nice comic book moon cape. You know, he jumps yeah. off and you see the, the 
it's in the crescent moon and it's all very comic this is actually a very superhero-y episode in the way the it first really two weren't we get to see how uh, how deadly Moon Knight is with those moonerangs possibly <laughs> crafted by Clint Barton in the past. Um, Stephen Grant watching all of this from somewhere else, you know, inside uh, the consciousness of Mark is appalled. At he's like, the violence. It, yeah, he's appalled at the violence that Spectre is unleashing and he manages to seize control of the body. And all of a sudden the suit morphs into the Mr. Knight variety he immediately gets impaled by a spear and he's like okay you know what Give mark you take it yeah I got about it. <laughs> you take it and uh so mark is just like back in the body and is immediately like double speared by uh by some of morgoth's men meanwhile layla is at the sarcophagus and she's fighting one of Mar- margo's henchies and we watch as Layla takes off her necklace, which we think is just like a stylish and striking statement piece. But no, it's actually mm-hmm. like a double-edged like dagger, two daggers, and she, yeah. she straight up murders a guy. Sorry, Beck. And then runs to Mark's rescue, but gets the wind knocked out of her by Margot. And Mark, needing to run to her rescue, then like just basically snaps all the spears out of his body, which is a really impressive display of, of healing factor. He then kills um, Margot with a moonerang. Uh, Layla grabs the whatever was in Senfu's tomb, which we later learn is a map, and they uh, and they go off to, to find Amit. In the car, Layla and Mark are talking about what Harrow uh, had said about Mark and all the things he had revealed about how Mark was mentally ill and how he's struggling. Although they don't quite, you know, name it as anything. And she's upset that she's like, you know, every time I find out something about you, it's like you're a whole new other person. It's like I don't know you at all. And Mark, kind of surprisingly, but also refreshingly, is like, you're right. You don't know me. Um, now, don't let Harrow, you know, get in between us. Don't let him poison us against each other because we need to stay strong right now. Uh, and after a while, they arrive at the at uh, at a place in the desert where they can read this map, which turns out to be a star map. Uh, they have to call Stephen again because he's the only one that can that can put all of these pieces together in the way that they need to go together. Mark is annoyed again, but he knows it's right. Steven takes over in what I think is one of the best single moments of acting like in a Disney plus Marvel show is Oscar Isaac looking into his reflection as Mark Spector and then wordlessly transforming into Stephen Grant with just like a, a relaxation of his face. It was really, really cool. Stephen then uh, swings into action. He's really excited by all this. He assembles the map while mansplaining ancient Egyptian navigation <laughs> techniques. Uh, but apparently, here's the thing. The map was created thousands of years ago. The stars have moved since then. So they need to know the actual date of when this map was created in order for them to figure out where Amit's tomb is. Kanchu comes back. Kanchu's like, oh, you know what? I remember the night. Uh, that this was created really well. Uh, give me a hand, Stephen. Do do what I do. Let's turn the, the stars back to the positions they were thousands of years ago on the night this map was created. So they do so. And people all around the world, we would assume, although we only see people in Egypt, but we would assume all around the world people would see the sky just mm-hmm. warping with trails of of stars as the sky gets rewound back centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. Um and of course, we understand that the gods had already warned Kanshu about the eclipse. And so <laughs> they 
as as soon as they get wind of this, which is quite quickly, they are going to lock Kanchu up. Yeah. And Kanchu's like, listen, when that happens, Mark, I need you to free me. So, okay, they're going to lock me up and I need you to free me. The gods then imprison Kanchu in a cute little Kanchu statue. They just like suck that. his energy. It was they were there ready. They already. Were ready for it. They were and and his energy goes into it. Stephen collapses, or Mark, or whoever he is in that moment, or maybe Jake Lockley, who knows? And the gods' avatars show Harrow the Conchu statue, and Harrow's like, "Hey, can I be alone to just kind of like talk shit to this? <laughs> can he? He can hear me in there, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, we think so." And he's like, "All right, let's just give me a little privacy so I can talk shit to this to Conchu." <laughs> Harrow, it's quite clear from the things he says now. Uh, carries a lot of animosity, and probably rightly so from his mm-hmm. time as Kanshu's avatar. Um, and then he essentially says, listen, what I'm going to do with Ahmed's help, i.e. mass murder on a global scale, it's really <laughs> it's really your fault. It's your fault, 100% your fault for the way that you treated me as your avatar and for the things I had to do as your avatar. And we are on to episode four next week. Uh, your thoughts on this, on this episode, Rosie? There's lots of stuff to dig into here. I mean... This introduces us. One of the things I think is really interesting is this introduces us to like the Egyptian gods, and obviously they are real gods from real history. But in Marvel, those mm-hmm. gods all exist. Yeah. So it's like the Heliopolitans is what they call them. That's basically like a god supergroup. So I thought that was yeah. really interesting. A lot of connections to Thor. That's where Isis and Osiris all debuted in 1975's Thor two three nine. Like. I thought that was really interesting because I wonder if we're going to ever get to the space of having like an ancient Egyptian Asgardian kind of space in the Marvel Universe. We know that they mentioned other members in Black Panther. You know, they mentioned Bast. So I thought that was really cool. I like anything that's like cosmic or mythological. I think the Jake Lockley, was it him? Was it not? Is there another altar coming through? That's the big theory piece. I also think that this is a really big episode for Layla, who is definitely like Huge. one of our favorite yeah. characters. Uh, Mae yeah. Kalamaui is just so great. She has this real Evie from the Mummy energy. She's very like yeah. cheeky. And she turns up in Egypt to help Mark, even though he's mad disrespectful. He wanted to get a divorce. He didn't tell her he has like a secondary personality. Like Stephen's kind of weird and creepy <laughs> to her. But she was just there. She was like, pow, I don't care. I'm going to Egypt. I'm going to help you out. And in this, so we really learn in this episode that they're definitely leaning into the Scarlet Scarab thing. If you actually watch the trailers, there's a photo of Layla and her dad, and next to it is a scarlet piece of cloth with a scarab on it. So I really think we're getting that Marlene mixed with this potential connection that uh, she may have to the scarab. I'm I'm really interested to see where things go, because this is another show like Hawkeye, where, for example, Anton Mogart, who you mentioned, who is this in this is this kind of art dealer... Uh, black market, dodgy guy. He's been to Madripoor with Layla. That was a big drop. In the comics, he is a Moon Knight villain. He uh, debuted in Moon Knight number three, and he was called Midnight Man. Midnight Man. And so that's an... Did he really die in this episode, or are we going to see him come back again and kind of be a more primary antagonist? It looked like he didn't do very well, but in the comics, he gets, like, disfigured and then comes back as a kind of masked hero who works alongside the number one missing character from this series, likely a good thing, uh, Raoul Bushman, who is like a, was Moon Knight's partner on the fateful trip where he gained his powers. That's a very problematic character. So if they reimagined it, it would have to be kind of like a, uh, M'Baku style reimagining where you take a character that has really problematic elements and make something really special. The fact that 
Mogart was there makes me think that we might have some kind of Bushman illusion or situation as we go forward. Because also in this episode, Harrow hints at what happened to Layla's dad on this archaeological quest. And we also know that in Moon Knight's origin, as you've mentioned before, he was he was part of a kind of terrible tragedy yeah. in the desert. And we know that in this show, Mark Spector was accused of murdering an archaeologist. So I think we can put together some clues that yes. there's going to be a tragic situation going on. And we should mention that the actor, Gaspard Ulliel, uh, who played Anton Morgart, uh, passed away this January yeah. uh, in a skiing accident. Um, it, the Majapur name drop was interesting because clearly, you know, Madripoor is a, a, a city of, of vast illegal interests. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that Stolen Antiquities would move through there. Um, and of course, it's a place that has strong ties to the X-Men. Yeah, that's uh, the wildest thing to me. Like every time they yeah. say, I know they established it, Sharon Carr, power broker. Yeah. That's probably where they're going. But I always think of the X-Men, of Wolverine, of Patch. You know, it's so yeah. exciting every time I hear them say it. Yeah, so just to, just for people who don't know, in in uh, I think this must have been like early nineties, late eighties, Wolverine got his own solo series, and how this guy managed to be in the X Men and then do all the adventures he did on his own <laughs> while traveling like coast to coast and internationally, I don't know. But this guy was a very busy guy, and he spent a lot of time living in Madripoor. Under this persona of Patch, who is this kind of rapscallion uh, bar denizen, later club owner, who rubbed elbows with pirates and various gangsters, but was a good guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, honestly, most of Wolverine is set there. So whenever Madripoor comes up, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, here come the X-Men. And we, in in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they even had the princess bar, which is where Patch would always hang out. So, like, they want us to make those connections. And I also um, saw put a really cool note that I wouldn't really have thought of, which is, like, post-Shang-Chi, Zhai Ling is running the Ten Rings, and that's obviously going to be deeply connected to Madripoor. Now, that Sharon Carter... And Layla, I'm like, yeah, probably. But Jai Ling and Layla, I'm like, yeah. I would like to see that. Like, that's a relationship I want to know about. Like, so I think they, it, this is an episode where it seems like it's just this action-packed boom, boom, boom superhero. But it seems like they're, they're spreading a lot of seeds that could kind of sprout into different things, whether they're in this show or in the greater MCU. Yeah, I agree. And I can't help but notice that the episode starts with Mark Spector losing time passing out, losing time, waking up in a different place, not knowing how he got there. We can only assume that someone else was in control of the body, but not Stephen because Stephen's not talking about it and Stephen doesn't seem to know what ha- what happened either. And here at the end of this, we have uh, Stephen, uh, who was in control at the time, uh, passing out after Khonshu's uh, uh, energy is trapped in, in the statue. I wonder when Mark slash Stephen wake up Mm-hmm. Where we are, like where we are, is that a moment when Jake or whoever the 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 other uh, personality is comes through? Um, but I think I would expect that we're going to a new kind of place in the next episode. I think so too, especially if you think about how 
prominent the museum was in the first episode and then yeah. in the second episode as he got as Stephen got closer to Mark the museum was suddenly he was fired he suddenly couldn't be there anymore yeah. then in this episode when he's embracing Mark he's in Egypt so the idea of another alter another personality another side of himself coming out it makes sense that that would potentially lead us to a different space and and I it's also interesting to me and who knows if this means anything but when this unknown personality came through. It was when, to your point one, it kind of hints that maybe, certainly Mark uh, is maybe less, has less of an affinity for violence than we were expecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which would, and, and it was also moments where it seemed like the body of Stephen slash Mark was in its most perilous uh, state, which would kind of, it suggests maybe that whoever the other uh, personality is, that they are somehow letting Stephen and Mark run around and do things until mm-hmm. until like there's an emergency and they need to take control. Yep. So it would suggest that whoever that other personality is, they are moving pieces around in a more direct way than either Stephen or Mark and have more of a full picture maybe than Stephen or Mark. Yeah, it definitely, there is a a hint here. And for the beginning, I thought from the the beginning, I thought it was Khonshu, but we know that that's not the case now. And also something else interesting to think about is like, who is keeping them alive? Who is giving them the power if Khonshu has been trapped? In the comics, Mark being separated from Khonshu usually leads to him leading, losing his powers or having to, uh, regain them in a different way by meeting the priests of Konshu, by gaining an artifact. So I think that the idea that there may be a more puppet master, altar, or a different person who is more in control and is allowing them to kind of have their fun where they can until it becomes dangerous would make a lot of sense. When we're back, we'll be discussing uh, fantasy and science fiction uh, and interviewing the great author Nicola Griffith. Welcome to the Airlock. Uh, this podcast is coming out on Friday, April 15th, and it is the same day that the uh, latest Fantastic Beasts movie uh, is uh, is releasing in theaters. Uh, we won't be covering that just because, you know, I have covered a lot of uh, J.K. Rowling uh, content over the course of my uh, career, and I've enjoyed it. Um, but I just don't think that I can uh, – I can possibly give her money anymore or uh, take part in any kind of situation that would potentially give her money, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with the kind of climate in society right now towards trans people and and the increasing peril and aggressive language that are, that um, the LGBTQAI community writ large is being faced with. So we wanted to take this opportunity to just talk about other uh, authors, other creatives in the sci-fi fantasy space um, with a focus on uh, uh, queer creators, uh, creators of color, just like a more diverse set of of sci-fi and fantasy creators. That's what we wanted to do. So with that, gosh, do you have any thoughts on the new Fantastic Beast movie and J.K. Rowling in general and this whole situation <laughs> wow. that we find ourselves in? Yes, I, I do have I do have thoughts about it. I am exactly on the same page as you. You know, this is something that um, was a large part of my childhood. I am the age that I was in school and was a basically analogous ages to the to the kids in the books. It was a 
a book series that meant a lot to me. I worked in a bookshop, so I would be able to go to the opening nights when I was still not legally even old enough to really work. I it was something that meant a lot to me, but it's something that I now can no longer enjoy. It's something I used to cover. It's part of what my mm-hmm. my knowledge base is, the same as you, that was part of my career. And there's just, you know what? There's better stories out there told by people who aren't actively harming communities yes. that I love and care about. And we're going to talk about them and it's going to be amazing. And I feel incredibly lucky to share this space with you, someone who cares about this stuff and understands exactly why we're focusing on something else. I just think it's terribly alarming. Right? Like, it's alarming. This is not to say that it was not dangerous and and uh, potentially toxic, harmful rhetoric previously. But I think like the events of like the last six months even just make it feel much more pressing and uh, and something that kind of like actively needs to be pushed back against. I think the situation is that the reason that it's always been so dangerous is that having prominent figures with huge followings who are seen as respectable or liberal or whatever else saying these things are why these legislations can be brought in. It's why they have the support. It's why people know these terminologies. It's so it has an active effect that is negative and dangerous and sometimes fatal. And I absolutely agree with you. It's 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 time to push back on it and it's time to celebrate other stuff that lifts people up and 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 opens spaces for people and changes people's lives in a positive way rather than a dangerous one. In the realm of books I love that turns out that the author was a shithead, Ender's Game. Ender's Game is like one of... It was one of the things I was thinking about. That is a friend's older brother like recommended it to me and it like crushed me. Like I was sobbing at the end of that book. And, and then it, it became quite clear like in not recent years, but I would say in the last like eight years or so that Orson Scott Card had some really terrible views, particularly on uh, on the issues of homosexuality and LGBTQAI issues. And it just, man, I just had to drop that. I just had to drop that series and not, uh, not uh, interact with any Orson Scott Card content anymore. And I got to tell you, I love Ender's Game. I think it's a great book still. Yeah. Um, because none of that un- toxic <laughs> ideas that he has uh, are, you know, it's been a number of years since I read it, but it seemed present in the book at the time. I I will say just uh, he calls, if I'm not mistaken, like the aliens in that are called are the buggers. Yeah, buggers. Bugger is like slang for gay sex in oh, England. God. So uh, he really anyway. he he built. Well, it's the same. Mine mine was like this is so funny because you don't really think of him as like a sci-fi author, but one of the first books that I ever really remember that was like deep. When this was when I was a little little kid, when I was deep into that felt like you were really going into space is um, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, which yeah. is the sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, who it turns out is like a massive anti-Semite. Um, <laughs> but like when I was a kid, I remember that book. He he goes up in the the elevator, right, with his family and they go on the US, they end up on a space station. And that was one of the first interactions I had with sci-fi. But again, it you learn these things and then you're like, well, let me find someone else. And luckily there are like a ton of amazing creators who are, who are doing the opposite, who are using doing the thing that people have always done with sci-fi, which is and fantasy, which is to make analogous stories about real world oppression and and find like yeah. a, a important way to kind of talk about it. My personal philosophy is uh, when things like this occur, and particularly with with uh, uh, particular uh, focus on on J.K.'s work. And the Harry Potter series, which which is a, again a story series, a s- series of books that I, I really love, and uh, 
and through which I found a community of like-minded people whose company and relationships I still enjoy. Um, my personal philosophy is like, okay, no more money. I'm not going to support this. I, I'm not going to be buying the, the uh, Legacy of Hogwarts game. I'm not going to be covering the stuff. But when it comes to like what what happens, can I reread the books? Um, that one is more, I kind of feel like seizing these works from their author is like a kind of like a revolution. For me, it feels like a revolutionary act of like, fuck you. You don't own this anymore in the sense that like the people whose lives were touched by this and who found other connections through these stories, they should not now have to vacate this space because mm -hmm. you it turns out are bad. What should happen is they should then seize this space from you and continue in their uh, cultural relationships, the, the the bonds that they have with the communities they've created, and they should just like seize this story from you. So that's like how I feel about it when it comes like, you know, there are chapters still in Harry Potter that I, I like to read, but I just will never give her money anymore. I just can't. I think there's a lot of like power in that and a lot of also a lot of those conversations. Like there's an amazing uh, non-binary cartoonist that we were talking about, Maya Kababe, who made a Harry Potter fanzine called Harry Potter and the Problematic Author that was all about that kind mm -hmm. of journey. And I think it's really important to have those conversations and to kind of talk about what it means like to separate the art from the artist. I mean, I personally don't get any joy out of rereading them anymore, but I used to, there was, there was chapters in Harry Potter that that was the only way I could go to sleep as a kid was to read the chapter where he's on the night bus and he's got the hot chocolate and the hot water bottle yeah. and he's on his way. You know, that was, and it's, it's sad to lose those things, but that's the power of the singular author, right? Yeah, that's the power <laughs> of it. Um, let's move on to just what we're reading and any kind of stories, authors, wonderful tales, creators that we want to lift up right now. Do you have any uh, recommendations? Yeah, I, I talk a lot. There's a there's a brilliant book that I I read a lot of YA books, that, uh, uh, mm -hmm. which I guess comes from that legacy of these books that we're talking about that we really enjoy. Uh, there's a book I read that I sort of haven't forgotten about that I've re reread a couple of times uh, called Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. It's trans author, trans lead character and it is just so wonderful it's about uh, a boy called yadriel who wants to become a bruja and tries to summon a spirit to prove it but ends up freeing a different spirit and mm. then it becomes this kind of really dynamic exploration of of uh love and and friendship and and legacy and i just that book is so wonderful and it's very much to me like the kind of power of when somebody gets to tell a story that represents who they are but is also just absolutely unburdened and is just allowed to be completely free and adventurous and fantastical i think that's kind of the power ironically that uh, actually a lot of harry potter and stuff was missing because harry potter mm. is like it, it takes from a lot of different stories but those stories were often the same stories that were being told by the same people so Cemetery Boys is a, I always tell everyone, just go and buy that book. It's it's so good. One book that I read uh, recently that I just absolutely love is uh, The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. I think it's her debut novel. And it is a, a really wonderful, here's that word again, multiverse story, high concept, in which 
um, people from, let's just call it like Earth One, mm-hmm. uh, travel to uh, various closely related uh, dimensions in order to see, oh, are there, uh, are there any technology that they've developed that, that can help us like deal with uh, the ecological disaster that our current uh, planet is under or, you know, help us, uh, you know, grow food more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything we can learn from these other worlds and glean and, and bring back to our world? All through that, uh, there is the I, there is you know, you're left to wonder as you read uh, the early parts of this story, like, okay, but is it happening in reverse? Are there are there people from the other Earths coming to the, And so <laughs> all of those questions are things that get answered. It's a really amazing story about about class, about about race. Uh, it is a wonderful sci-fi tale, really, like, heartbreakingly told. Just a really good, really, really good book, really surprising, and a great multiverse story that unfolds in a way that you're not expecting. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that I always talk about when people ask about like, what's like a good queer comic or what's like a good story that kind of focused on different kinds of people. Tilly Walden, who is like one of our greatest living cartoonists and who is painfully talented for someone in their early twenties, um, made this unbelievable hundreds of pages long web comic called On a Sunbeam, which you can also buy in a beautiful uh, bound edition, but they never took down the free web comic, which I love. And it is the most sprawling, strange, beautifully illustrated story about these kids on this spaceship and this kind of ongoing journey that's about them and about the journeys they're going on in their relationships, but it's also about the journey of growing up, but it's also just a really cool, weird, quiet space story. But there are elements Mm. of magical school fantasy to it. The spaceship kind of grows and shifts and it's, it's so wondrous. And when you read it, you don't really realize till the end, but there is a very specific focus on a certain kind of character. And there is a very specific decentering of like the usual male heroic protagonist. And it is, it's one of the most sort of subtly radical books that I've read in a long time. And it's also Tilly's art is so beautiful and intricate. Like this is one of those comics where you can really go back and just read it a million times and you'll always notice Mm. something different. Next, this is specifically why we're going to have our guest in our next segment come on. Uh, but Nicola Griffiths Hild, yes, which I've talked about in various places uh, from 2013. Uh, Nicola is a wonderful uh, writer, queer writer, um, disabled writer who uh, writes really empathically and wonderfully in just like ways that are completely evocative. There are scenes in Hilde that I think about all the time mm-hmm. and that I reread all the time because they're just about, you know, like I, I came to, like I think a lot of people, comic books and sci-fi and fantasy because like there's this feeling of like outsiderness. Like you're looking for, you're looking for a place where uh, your own personal strangeness mm-hmm. and the way you don't fit, like the pieces about you that maybe don't fit, you're looking for the way, uh, that world where they do kind of fit, right? Yep. And this is like page one of Hild uh, describing uh, the character Hild, who at this point is a three-year-old girl. She liked time at the edges of things, the edges of the crowd, the edge of the pool, the edge of the wood where all must pass but none quite belonged. And that's basically the entire book is yep. how this character who is 
a woman in a world where women are not viewed as having any kind of power and their work is seen as somehow lesser work. There's a great, really evocative, very small moment where like a certain warrior who is having a dalliance with uh, one of the women characters um, offers to like help her, you know, bring some of the washing in. But as long as it's night and no one can no one will see that he is helping mm-hmm. her with like women's work, you know, in exchange for them hanging out longer. Like there's all these little moments that bring you into um, the power of the people like who are overlooked. And uh, it's just like a really, 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 really amazing book. Really, really amazing book. That's like there's some great plot turns, really heart like pounding like suspense and action but all these also these really like internal quiet moments about noticing the way people interact noticing the way people treat the main character notice how they treat each other um, notice how they act when they're anxious it's it's a lot about noticing yeah uh, which is what i love about it yeah there's so much detail nicola has an amazing i i love that book so much and nicola has another amazing book coming out called spear which is kind of this queer arthurian reimagining and it's not out yet so i won't get too deep into details but it definitely comes from that same space of the edges like we're on the edges and the journey is to find the other people who are our family, who are also on the edges to find that community. And I think that's such a powerful thing kind of about all of these books and and what we look for. Uh, My next rec is going to be like one of the most, this is one of the books I think about the most that I've read recently, which is called Pet um, by Akweke M. Ezi. And it is like, this is like the kind of transgressive, fiction that I feel like doesn't often get published but this did and it is a kid's book but it's also an adult's book and it is set in a futuristic world where where monsters don't exist but then Mm. a monster escapes out of an artist's canvas and suddenly this young black trans girl who is the protagonist begins to question whether or not these monsters do exist and and whether or not what the society has done by kind of shunning them. And it's really analogous to all this incredibly deep stuff. And as you read it as an adult, I feel like there's so many terrifying, emotionally wrought layers to it. But it also imagines a world where in, you know, the beginning, a, a black trans girl is safe. And in that way, it's this incredibly utopian it's that use of radical imagination that we all talk about a lot. Like to make a better world, you have to imagine it. And I feel like in in a way, Hill does that in a historical way where it rewrites history and broadens the scope of who was involved, which is just true. Because the people didn't not exist. They were just written out. And Pet does it in a way where it helps us to imagine like a future. And I just, that book I think about so much. I feel like it's one of those books where in years to come, it will become... A kind of, you know, I always think about it's a very different book, but Neil Gaiman's Stardust. That's a book where yeah. you could give it to a kid and you could give it to an adult, and two people would read it in totally different ways. And Pet really feels like a great contemporary version of one of those kind of timeless, ageless stories. And then my last wreck. I'm going to go nonfiction. There are a lot of harrowing things going on right now in the news, and it can be like difficult to like process everything. Susan Sontag, the essayist, philosopher, writer, novelist, thinker, wrote a, a really moving and wise and powerful book called Regarding the Pain of Others. It's really like a long essay. Um, and it's about how 
in modern life. It's kind of a companion to her essay on photography, just like about what it means to like regard images that have been mass produced and moved from different places. And, and, and it's a companion in that it posits that in the modern world, like it's never been easier for us to see and engage with mm-hmm. um, images that depict other people's suffering, other people's pain, et cetera. And so like, how do we deal with that? How do we sit with that? What do we do? What does it mean? If you can't, quote unquote, do anything, is it enough to just look at it and think about it and feel something about it? I I found it very moving and very wise. And it's a book that I think about a lot, all the time still. And I'm going to end with, we've talked about, you know, the 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 boy wizard the boy who lived it's it's something we talk about a lot it's it's a it's an overarching story of our time but i have read a book that comes out in may uh called the marvelers by donielle clayton Ooh. and it feels like it could be and it should be that next kind of cultural phenomenon book it oh is, wow it's a global reimagining of the magical story like magical school story it's about a girl called ella who goes to this arcanum training academy for marvelers and she is a conjurer at this school in the sky but she's the first ever conjurer to attend and that means that she is the target for people who don't trust her magic who are suspicious of it and it is this kind of it's so magical and it gives you that feeling of walking through the halls that those magical cozy feelings you want but it's also a book that deals with uh racial integration it deals with generational trauma but all the while it is it feels like this huge moment for fantasy it kids from all around the world study at these schools you know there's mm-hmm. there's different notions of what it is to be magical and to be from a different place that is feels just miles away from the stereotypes of old. And I think it could be a a big moment for people like us who love these books. And hopefully for kids who love these books, I feel like The Marvelous could be that book. Out May 3rd. Uh, really excited for that. Up next, our discussion with the author, Nicola Griffith. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. This week, we are absolutely thrilled to have Nicola Griffith, the award-winning author of So Lucky Hilled, The Odd, and other books, and of course, the upcoming novel Spear, which is available April 19th. Hello, Nicola. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hi. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking the time. We're both really big fans of your stories, and we're so stoked to talk to you. Um, Something that we often do when we talk to people on here is like, what was your origin story with fantasy, with sci-fi, with kind of stories that made you want to write stories? Wow. Um, That's a bit like saying, why are you who you are? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Panic, panic. Okay. Um, Basically, my first introduction to story was like, I'm guessing like most people, my mum telling me stories at bedtime. And Mm. she would make up stories um, and then she would read me kids books um, that is kids versions of myths Greek myths and mm. legends and so my first introduction to story was obviously all made up I think most kids they like things that are completely not real yeah 
but they can't really tell. I mean, we do, everything is new to a child, right? You're three. You've never seen a bunny before. So you don't know a bunny can't talk. So a talking rabbit, it's like, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> But I never, some part of me, I don't think ever let go of that. I mm. I feel that way also about nature. I felt the same kind of thrill going for a walk under the trees that I do getting lost in a story. It's the same kind of journey for me. It's a getting lost, finding my own way and discovering things about me in this other place, whether it's a story or an actual geographic location. And, and to me, story, writing stories is really the very best way to capture both those things. And I think it's probably why almost everything I write has a lot of nature in it. Mm. I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm answering the question. Yeah, it's, I yes. love that. It's, that oh, was, yeah. It was like listening yeah. to a wonderful story. We're both just like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Nicola, a big fan of your stories, as Rosie said, particularly Ammonite which is uh, your first novel, I believe, about uh, mm -hmm. its sci-fi colony, a sci-fi story about an all-women's colony in space, and and Hild, which I found uh, randomly in a bookstore under one of the, uh, you know, the suggestions from the from the workers at the bookstore, and I just happened to pick it, pick it up, and I loved it. And I think one of the things that I love about your writing is how how you bring the reader into the way characters notice things, in particular the way characters who aren't close to power or in power notice things that the people in power don't. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, in particular there's a scene in Hild where, where Hild is, uh, has noticed that Edwin the King is nervous about something uh, has, is having a lot of meetings, but she can't uh, quite unpack what. And then she asks one of his uh, guesses, guesses, one of his warrior companions, so what's going on in the meetings? And the warrior companion is like, I don't know, it's boring, old men talking about stuff. So she's like, mm -hmm. okay, let me get this guy some food. Men often open up when, they've, when, they're, when they're not hungry anymore. And then she just talks to him about different things that perhaps he's noticed. And then she's able to kind of, through this, unwind what it is that is gnawing at the king. And then she's able to, um, in, a, in a very powerful way, use that information in a way that's a little manipulative but also is – very smart in the way that she's getting the thing that she wants, but also um, getting the king the thing that he wants. Um, how, how much do you think about that when you're when you're writing? It's, it's just something I love about the way you write. Most of those scenes, I remember that particular scene very well because I remember thinking, okay, she needs to get him something to eat. Like, what the fuck did they eat then? <laughs> so I, I, had to, I had to think, okay, right, hair. They, they ate hairs, right? Let's look at pie and, and hair. And but so, yes, I do remember that scene really well. And she was very young, as I yeah. recall. So I was discovering it kind of with Hilt. I knew she needed a moment where she had to bring everything she had learned together in this one, mm. like she had to behave like a seer, as though she had magic. But of course, she doesn't because it's not a fantasy book, even though it reads a bit like that. Mm. She had she had to make other people think that she was magic and she had this prophetic gift. Um, and so before I wrote that scene, did I know exactly how she was going to do that? 
know. I really had no clue. I just had a a feeling. I just knew what the place felt like and, and how she felt and what it might be like to be surrounded by all these yeses with swords and spears and and she's got nothing except, well, now by this time she has her little sex. Actually, yeah. it's not that little. But. <laughs> so I, I suppose it's a bit like saying how, where does inspiration come from? I don't really mm. know. It comes from a lot of work and putting clues together. Basically, you're seeing in this book through Hild, my process as a writer, which is mm. part serendipity, part smart, part research, and part just trusting that it will be there when you step off the edge that you're building your bridge as you walk Mm. there's this chasm and you're heading towards it and you just have to have faith that there'll be something there when you get there that's really interesting and it kind of I that kind of talk speaks to one of the things I really wanted to know how did you kind of discover Hild because I'm from England I've been to Whitby a lot I was a goth when I was a teenager I loved Uh, Dracula it was really important place (laughs) to me but I'd never heard of uh, I'd never heard of Hild I'd never heard of this story how did you discover her and then what made you want to tell the story of Hild and, and bring it to a wider audience I discovered her the day I discovered Whitby I'd been living in Hull. I don't know if you ever spent any time in Hull. (laughs) Very depressed and quite depressing city in the northeast of England, where at the time when I was living there, unemployment rate was 25%. Wow. And and it literally smelled because the drains were all falling. I mean, it was just a terrible place to live. And I'd been having a bit of a hard time. So one weekend I escaped and, and went up the coast and um, went to Whitby. And I'd I'd heard, obviously I'd read Dracula, I'd heard of Whitby. So I was expecting all the steps. I was expecting the Abbey. What I really was not expecting was what happened when I got to the Abbey, which is, there's back in the day, it's changed now, there's uh, much more control about who can go in. But back in the day, you just kind of walked through it and there was this stone threshold And I remember crossing that threshold and it was like history just came fisting up through me. And I I was just, it just turned me inside out like a sock. Suddenly it's like, I don't know if you're familiar with the, there's um, a kind of new agey theory that, that some parts of the earth, that the, the layer between the world and the other world is very thin. Mm-hmm. I think Whitby is, if you buy into that, is one of those thin mm-hmm. places. There's a real sense of imminence and otherness there. And so I, I just walked into it and it was like, it was like sticking my head into a perfectly ordinary wardrobe and finding I was in Narnia. It was just, I was blown away. And so I had to, I had to know what is this place? Who built this place? Where does it come from? Why here? What's it about? What does it mean? And so I went to the little tourist place attached to the Abbey, which is much bigger now and amazing. But then it was just like a tatty little place next door. And they had a few little brochures. And and I, I read that the Abbey had been founded 1400 years ago by this woman called Hild. And I knew a bit about history at this point. And I thought, well, 1400 years ago, that was 
the quote dark ages mm. so how come a woman in the dark ages when <laughs> might was right and women supposedly were just chattel and had no power how how could she possibly have created this amazing place and done such mm -hmm. things um, and still be known today well partially known today um, and so I went to try find a book about her and there wasn't a book about her. <laughs> there's no scholarly monograph. There's no TV series. There's no cartoon. There's not even a, a racy romance novel. There was nothing. Ringing silence. The only thing I could find was um, Venerable Bede's um, History of the English Church and People. And, uh, and that has less than five pages about her. Wow. And most of that is um, really typical saint stories that could apply to anybody so that it's not real information. And, and there, was, there was no information. So now by this time, I'm on fire with curiosity. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> so I researched that book on and off for, I would say, 15 years. Wow. Because I went to Whitby in the 80s and it was in the back of my mind all that time. And then gradually, sometime in the 90s, I started picking up history books and actually reading and working my way back through notions of history. So I started with old fashioned mid 20th century history. And by the time I'd finished researching, although to be frank, I'm still not finished researching. I'm going to be researching this for the rest of my life. <laughs> By the time I got to the point where I was ready to write the book, shall I say, the first book, I I was talking to the people doing the research before it was published. In 2008, early career researchers, they were discovering blogs. And so you could, mm. you could just go online and find these people and what they were doing and talk to them in the comments. And they didn't know that who I was. They didn't know whether I was amazingly famous or, or nobody or a lunatic. And so they were very cautious at first. So I would have to elicit information from them. They, they didn't like risking stuff. They didn't like to say something unless they could give you 10 footnotes. <laughs> and so I remember one time I was trying, I was trying to find out what the Anglo-Saxons thought about dogs. What was their attitude yes. to dogs? And they were like, we know nothing about dogs. I said, okay. So if Hild had a Pekingese, and they're like, oh, she wouldn't have had a Pekingese. That's just no. And I said, well, there you see, you do know something. <laughs> so what kind of dog might she have had? So, and then we went from there, but, oh, it was like blood from a stone at first, getting this information from these people. So anyway, that's how it began. That's how I really needed to do it. And like I say, there was just no information. So I, I researched everything. I researched flora and fauna and building techniques and textile production and agriculture and the weather, everything, everything was different then. And, and I, and I decided I was just, just build the seventh century. I was going to build the mm. whole goddamn century. And then I was going to put Hild in it and see how she behaved, what happened, how on earth she could have done this. And the only way to do that was by making her 
a child. So I could discover along with her. But that that wasn't a deliberate choice. It mm. what happened was I got basically got drunk one day. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, screw this. It's my birthday tomorrow. I cannot go another year without starting this goddamn book. I thought, right, I'm gonna start. And I had no idea what's going on. Just I'm gonna write a paragraph. And and so I began. And there she was. She was this three-year-old girl under a tree. And I thought, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> that that's the key to everything. And then I was off. So yeah, a mix of um hard work, guessing, and alcohol, I suppose, is <laughs> how I did that. Yeah. It sounds as if, and and guessing from uh, from the content of of your other works, that this that the process of creating Hild was very different than than what you've done previously or even since with some of your more personal kind of works in different genres. Would you say that is that the case? They're all different, yeah. and yet they're all the same. Um, I rarely write a book without some part of it having grown in my writer's brain, in my back brain, some little factoid that's stuck to another one and is sort of mutating in there. And then a few years later, this this thing springs out full blown. <laughs> so, so in that sense, the process is the same. Um, but almost every single thing I write is trying to answer a question. Mm. So, so Ammonite, for example, my first book, the question I was trying to ask, trying to answer was a question I, I saw being asked all the time in science fiction and not answered satisfactorily, not giving me the answer I wanted, which is basically, are women human? I mean, because most science fiction books, if you had a world only of women, they behaved like half a thing. They didn't behave mm -hmm. like whole mm -hmm. human beings. And I thought, you know, no, I don't buy that answer at all. So I'm going to have to figure this out. So I wrote Ammonite basically to answer that question. Slow River came from a, a different kind of question, a much more personal question, actually, mm. about who are you when you have nothing left? Is there such a thing as an essential self? Um, and then the three out books that came those came from a dream i had this mm. this dream that there was this woman completely naked and sprawled on the carpet of an absolutely empty apartment but sprawled in a really you know like a lion on the veldt actually mm. not afraid of anything sprawled and it was absolutely empty apartment i mean there weren't even light fixtures it was that empty and I was thinking, well, that's odd in my dream. And then the next thing I know, this woman wakes, uh, is woken up by a gun to her head. And instead of going, <clears throat> or freaking out even, she just sits right up with a big flashlight and breaks the guy's neck. Boom, like that split second, no hesitation. And I woke up going, whoa. <laughs> Whoa, who who was that? Who's that? <laughs> yeah. And how come she could do that? What what would make it possible? What kind of person could do that? And so the three out books were all about answering that question, how she got to be that person. 
in that place at that time. So yeah, it's always a question. Hilt was like, how did this Abbey be like this? How could Hilt do what she did? I think, I think the only book I've ever written that is not about answering a question, but more about just getting stuff out because it needed to be out mm. was um, So Lucky, mm-hmm. my book about uh, the woman diagnosed with MS. Yeah. And it's not autobiographical in the sense that the character is, is not really very much like me. Although I did give her an English accent because I was going to be doing the audio narration and I just <laughs> couldn't bear doing an American accent. <laughs> yeah. thing, so. so yeah, in that sense, she's like me. But that book has always made me slightly uncomfortable because it, it's not my usual thing. Mm. And also it doesn't do what every other book I've ever done does, which is to basically center what most people would consider the other. Because in So Lucky, it's the only book about the difference of the character, about mm-hmm. her being disabled. All my other books, you've got disabled people, you've got queer people, you've got women, etc. Um, and it doesn't matter. It, it's, it doesn't make any difference to the character. They may as well have blue eyes rather than green eyes. It, it's it's a nothing. Whereas So Lucky was very much that the difference was a something. It was mm. the thing. With Spear, you kind of, you definitely continue that former version, which is every kind of character in, involved in a, a kind of this, in this case, an epic kind of reimagining of Arthurian lore. So what's what's that question that Spear is answering? How do I retake Camelot for real people? Mm. Because the matter of Britain, the whole Arthurian cycle it's essentially a national origin story. And so it's got this nativist, supremacist, manifest destiny crap mm-hmm. baked in. And uh, and I thought, you know, I love that legend. I love this notion of Camelot. I don't, I don't care about it being a specific time or a specific place. For me, Camelot's all about the dream. Mm-hmm. It's about the the fight for justice and equity. And um, so I needed to find a way to write that, but still make it Arthurian. So that's how I did Spear. That's why I wrote Spear. And also because it seemed like a really nifty idea. (laughs) I just want, and honestly, to, to be honest, I really thought it was going to be a short story. I thought it would take me two weeks. I set the Hilt sequel aside. I thought, okay, I'll get this done in two weeks, get back to Meanwood. And this thing just roared out. I mean, it just, I can't tell you. After I wrote Spear and then I went back to Meanwood, I wrote more in the first year of the pandemic in one year than I have ever written. I wrote 200,000 words. Wow. I think they were all good words. I wrote Spear. And I wrote a lot of Meme. I finished Memewood, which is a very large book. <laughs> and I just, it just, I was just really fired up. And the pandemic meant that I didn't have to stop to do things like even mm. go to the doctor because no one was going to the doctor. I didn't have to go out for dinner with anyone. I didn't have to go <laughs> to conferences. I just got to stay at home and live in this um, 
early medieval world, and it was wonderful. So yeah, Spear was a confluence of all the things I love, all the things I love about Hilt, but also then completely free of a lot of Hilt's exterior stresses. I mean, Parity is not, she doesn't have to worry about taking care of anybody, really. Mm. She's young and free and makes the most of it. And I loved that. It felt really good. You uh, wrote a New York Times op-ed in, in 2018 about your role as a queer writer with disabilities, um, mm -hmm. how that influences your work and how uh, important it is to be a representative for other people in the space who are looking for stories. Has anything changed since that time? Oh, it's been amazing. Yeah, it is changing a lot. I'm really, I'm thrilled, actually. I've seen just, I would say, in the last five years, an absolute explosion of disability literature. Mm -hmm. It is, it's incredible, particularly in, first of all, in the YA space. Yeah. Mm. Lots of um, YA cripplet. And now there's, uh, in the science fiction and fantasy space, there's an awful lot of literature about disabled characters, with disabled characters, should I say. It, so it's incredible. I'm still seeing... Um, a lot of resistance in more mainstream mm -hmm. literary presses. They What they want, if you're disabled and you, you've got a disabled character, they want the book to be about the character's disability struggles. Yeah. They don't want to just see them going, woohoo, right. you know, and whacking someone's head off with a sword. They just, <laughs> they, no, no they, they, want the, the, they want authenticity. And their notion, because they are, ableist and mm -hmm. most of us are honestly ableist yeah um they think that the authentic experience is suffering you know i've seen the same thing with um literature especially memoir from immigrants and refugees that all people want is their trauma story give mm -hmm. us your trauma they don't want to know about the success and the joy and any of that stuff so i'm still seeing that resistance and also I'm seeing, um, I would like to see more changes, should I put it, um, in criticism. I would rather see more people with disabilities reviewing fiction with disabled characters as opposed to non-disabled people. I mean, I, I get so tired of seeing these books by non-disabled people about disabled characters who kill themselves. Yep. And, and calling it wonderful and authentic. And I'm thinking, ah, well, I shouldn't say what I'm thinking. It's unprintable. <laughs> it would have to be considerably bleeped. Um, but I'm not happy. I, mean, I remember having a conversation with a, a writer who'd been sent one of these books to review, I think, for the Washington Post, might have been the New York Times. She's like, I'm having a really hard time with it. So we talked about it and I said, you need to say it. You, you mm -hmm. need to say why it's wrong, why it's bad. And that was very difficult for her because her, her stance to reviewing is always lift up the writer. And I said, mm -hmm. this, you cannot lift her up for this. Lift her up for every single thing in the book except this. Yeah. And, and she did, and I was so pleased. I was 
really grateful and glad. But that's what we need. We need more of that. Yeah, I agree. It's actually really shocking. I'm disabled. And that same trope of the uh, honorable sacrifice. Oh. There was a there was a YA book when I was a young kid and I had a lot of uh, community within the disability activism movement. But there mm-hmm. was a book that would be given around and it was a YA book written by a man who had a son who had cerebral palsy. And at the end, uh, the the son gets set on fire and he dies. And, and, and the book is told from his perspective and the perspective is he is glad that he's dying because it will be like good for his family. And that was a book that they legitimately gave to disabled kids, to people I know who had cerebral palsy. Like, And that is still going on 20 years later and it kind of blows my mind. Look how long it took for queer lit to change from, mm-hmm. from the lesbian giving it up so her bisexual girlfriend could have a normal <laughs> life. I mean, really, that went on for 80 years. So mm-hmm. in this sense, I think, Cripplet is doing relatively well. It has a long way to go, but it's following many of the same um, paths, I think, as Queerlit did. Yeah. So there is hope. There's hope. It's it's coming. I just wish it would hurry up and get here a bit quicker. What are you reading now? What what if um, for our listeners maybe who are thinking, oh, that sounds. I've been waiting for a story like this. This is something I'd like to to read. Well, right now I haven't been reading a lot of stories. Let me see. Uh, I've I've been reading a lot of nonfiction about Mm -hmm. small, tedious things in uh, early medieval times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love to hear it because I know what that means. Well, for example, I mean, this is actually more about Spear than, than Hilt, but... I just read a really good book, and it's from 2008, all about Arthurian literature and all mm. the tropes that have been used and how it's... It, so it's just a whole set of different articles, so each article takes a different stance. But it's fascinating to see how much really serious scholarship has gone into to uh-huh. the whole Arthur legend. I really wish... I'm, should I say, I'm really glad I hadn't read that book before I wrote Spear. Otherwise, I might have thought, well, how are you? I'm no, not touching that. <laughs> but let me see, what have I read in the, particularly the queer and fantasy space in the last year or two? It's, um, I, I read Alex Harrow for the first time last year. So I read her novella, a spindle splintered and she's got a, a new one coming out, I think in a couple of months called the mirror mended. And that's, it's really great. It is another kind of retelling. And so I want to get back to this notion of retelling mm. in a minute. Mm. Um, also Samantha Shannon, who wrote um, the Priory of the orange tree. Yes. I'm drawing a bit of a blank. What I tend to do when I'm in writing mode is I read nonfiction and then mm. I reread old favorites mm. and poetry. I read poetry. So I, I, yeah. I basically subscribe to Poetry Magazine and just read that every month, you know, because <laughs> I read a couple of those and then go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of rereading things that you love, I'm, I'm often drawn to uh, some scenes in Hill just because that, you know, um, they're so evocative. And uh, one that I go back to again and again is um, the moment when uh, Edwin King uh, 
asks Hild to uh, – gives her a challenge. She has to carry – you know, and she has to pour a, a cup mm-hmm. uh, for the king while carrying this extremely heavy torque armband that he has given her. And she finds a very um, uh, inventive way <laughs> to carry this out, uh, surprising everyone. And it's a big moment. And there's other big moments like this. And, and uh, when I'm reading them, I'm always thinking, God, for a child – to be there and bluff the king to the point that the king is saying, okay, well, we're going to do this thing that you're telling us to do, but if you're wrong, I'm going to feed you to my dogs. What is it like to write these scenes where you're just putting this child into these uh, into these positions of great, great peril? Because I'm always so much more nervous than she is. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> well, that's you see. Here's the that's the thing about kids is that I suppose part of me is trying to write Hild as say a a seven year old with the heavy cup and the talk yeah. the arm ring, trying to write her the way I would like to have been. Mm. You know, as a kid, I mean, I was one of those, I was always in fights. I liked to climb trees. You know, I was, I wanted to live a big life. I wanted to, to do amazing things. And to me, Hild is that opportunity to do that. And so I didn't have a lot of fear as a seven-year-old. And so I, I give Hild the kind of fear and caution I had as a seven-year-old, which is she kind of knows that she's in great danger but it it doesn't freak her out you know mm. she doesn't have a thundering heart she doesn't get sweaty she she's not part of her her body doesn't really believe it her mind does cuz everyone tells her but really deep down she knows she's immortal like all kids do we all think right. yeah we're, we're yeah. untouchable <laughs> So she's she's like that, but but then when I write the scene where someone threatens her that way, it gives me a shiver. I go, yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't wait for someone else to read it. You know, I, I there there I love those moments in work where I'm going away. I have playlists and I I tend to type in rhythm like, <laughs> you know? and then and then something like happens and I go, whoa, <laughs> and I always. Imagine the music swelling. It never does because it's never timed that way. But yeah, it feels like that. It feels like this huge, amazing moment. I love writing. It, it's it's such a it, it's the best job I've ever had in my life, and I expect to have it till till I drop dead, which hopefully won't be for a really long time <laughs> because I'm having too much fun and I have too much too much to write. Um, speaking of. Uh... Can you, what, if anything, can you tell us of, of Meanwood? It's long. (laughs) (laughs) It is about 30% longer than Hill. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Long. And it starts almost immediately. Let me see when, how many, maybe four months after the end of Hill. And then it goes for four years. And talk about endless regime change yeah Mm -hmm. wow so she learns a lot about war she has she has some very difficult times 
but also she has these amazing joyous moments and and the book does end with a great sense of excitement and discovery and adventure so that that's pretty much all i'm going to say about oh we can't wait uh we can't wait for it thank you nicola for for joining us it's been wonderful Mm -hmm. to talk to you it's been my pleasure thank you Thanks so much to Nicola Griffith for coming on the show up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, Dave, a.k.a. Mr. Fire to his students, pitches us on the Illuminatus trilogy. Hello, nerds. I'm coming to you today to talk about one of my favorite forms of nerdery, which is books, specifically the Illuminatus trilogy written by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea. Wilson and Shea were editors for Playboy. Specifically, they were dealing with letters to the magazine. Apparently, some people really were reading it for the articles. And many of the letters that they received were about conspiracy theories. And the two of these guys decided between them that they were going to ask the question, not which of these conspiracy theories are true, but rather, what if all of them are true? And these books, this trilogy, is conceived as a sort of journey through what if every single one of these conspiracies were true? What if not only someone other than who we think killed John F. Kennedy, what if a bunch of people killed John F. Kennedy altogether? What if John Dillinger is still alive? What if Adam Weishaupt killed George Washington and replaced him uh, in order to bring the Bavarian Illuminati into power in the United States and either spread or stop the spread of cannabis being grown by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? What if the MC5 were spreading secrets with their song, Kick Out the Jams? All of these things, all of these conspiracy theories are treated as completely real in these novels. The three books that make up the Illuminatus trilogy, The Eye in the Pyramid, The Golden Apple, and Leviathan, all kind of work together, spinning this wild, drug-fueled narrative building towards a gigantic music festival that has the names of hundreds of made-up bands, some of which are now real bands. They all together craft a story of talking dolphins and an Atlantis that's real, built with Lovecraftian monsters. Novels from Pynchon and Vonnegut are referenced. This is the kind of stuff that will blow your mind and probably hurt it more than just a little. These books are extremely important to some of our favorite comic writers and TV writers, Damon Lindelof. You'll see elements of this in Lost, in Fringe. You see this from Chris Carter in The X-Files. Alan Moore has called Robert Anton Wilson an inspiration. We see this uh, also from people like Grant Morrison. And now with the rise of what may be the Illuminati in our new Doctor Strange trailer, we know that this may be the origin of that term coming back into the narrative once again. So check out these books. They're great. You will absolutely love them. Thanks, Dave, for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. Big thank you to Dave for his nerd out and, of course, Nicola Griffith uh, for joining us. And, of course, for the great Rosie Knight for co-hosting this podcast uh, today. It's been a wonderful day of discussions that I hope are meaningful to some people. Rosie, it is plug time. What are we plugging? 
Hello, it's me. Uh, you can find me. I'm back. After two seconds, <laughs> uh, you can find me, uh, Rosie Marks, on Instagram. I recently visited a very incredible community cinema called Vidiots that's being built in oh, Eagle yeah. Rock in LA. I'm, I've got a little fundraiser running through my Instagram, so feel free to go there and learn a little bit more. I'll have a big feature coming up about them at Nerdist. It's a really incredible space that's going to be a video store where you can actually rent DVDs and Blu-rays, as well as a community cinema that will have a space for local people to screen films, to speak, to talk to know each other and it will have a huge beautiful screen to screen movies uh videos is continuing like this unbelievable legacy of a uh, female-owned female helm yes. video store in santa monica that's been there since the 80s so just generally good stuff so go check out videos support them they're in the support mode at the moment because they're still building the new location uh so yeah that's that's my big plug it was it was very cool uh, i'm really excited for for videos and it seems like it's such a really wonderful project to get behind uh, and that already has like a lot of really wonderful people supporting yeah. it that's a cool one check out our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel catch the next episode April 22nd when we'll be revisiting WandaVision in anticipation this is going to be really fun I'm excited to rewatch yeah, WandaVision and I'm excited to talk about it because Multiverse of Madness is coming folks Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness which I think we both expect to see a lot of the repercussions of the events of WandaVision in that movie. Be sure to send out your nerd out submissions to xrayacrooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. And don't forget, we love the five-star ratings, folks. We love them. We absolutely love them. We thrive on them. Please send us the five-star ratings. If you're thinking about like a four, don't even think about it. <laughs> Give us a five. We need the five, baby. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dellen Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. And Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Bye!